Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Wolfi. If you enjoy this programming, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Join Truth and Rhythm's membership program through Patreon. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funkin' Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I am pleased to welcome back to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership classically trained funk keyboardist, singer, composer, and producer, Danny Brajosian. For the past 20 years, he has been known as a central and touring member of Parliament Funkadelic, also known as George Clinton and the P-Funk All-Stars. During that time, he has also appeared on numerous P-Funk and associated studio recordings and led many of his own projects several of which feature fellow funk mob players. In addition, he has compiled an exciting new book titled The Authorized P-Funk Song Reference, Official Canon of Parliament Funkadelic, 1956-2023. to This landmark book fully documents the vast recording history of one of music's most prolific and monumental acts. Danny, man, how are you? Thank you so much for joining the show again. Great, Scott. I'm great. so glad to be back, man. One of my favorite shows that I watch, uh, you know, I'm kind of like a podcast freak these days ever since COVID. And your show is one of my favorites by far because I just love the deep dives. I love how you get into the nitty gritty, all the details with all these great musicians and vocalists and musical people that you've been interviewing over the years. So I'm so happy to be back. It's a real honor. Well, thanks. Uh, I love to hear that, of course. And uh, man, it's been six years since you were on. It's hard to believe that. Yeah, lots happened in that time. Quite, quite a, <laughs> quite a bit. Yeah, so uh, it's going to be great to catch up. And, um, you know, um, I want to remind viewers to go back and check out that 2017 show because that really gets into, you know, your earlier history and all those recordings and things like that. So definitely check that out if you haven't seen it. And, um, you know, I think after that show wasn't too long, um, that we had uh, the Parliament album came out. Yeah. You know? So now right. this seems like, you know, quite a while ago, but, you know, it was timely then, and uh, nothing's come out since then from right. from uh, Parliament or Funkadelic. So um, how do you feel, you know, in hindsight, you know, how that project uh, turned out? Well, it's funny because we were talking about it a little bit, I, I believe, when we did that interview 
um, back in 2017. I can't believe that's when it was. Um, but we were we were just getting ready to to put it out. And to be honest, it's it's probably my proudest uh, work with George, at least out of stuff that's come out, um, and at least out of studio work. Uh, it's one of my proudest. Uh, I really love that album, and and um, out of recent P Funk releases, it's certainly one of my favorites. And um, with I just wish we could uh, we could do more more uh, more releases. But the thing is, too. And the book will, you know, this kind of segues into the book. The book will show there's always stuff getting released at all times. So, so although devoid of a recent Parliament of Funkadelic release, that was the first one in also what almost forty years, and so a few years since then isn't as bad as the amount of time we've waited since Trombipulation, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a good perspective to put in for sure, or or the Funkadelic before that exactly um, yeah but um yeah i enjoyed it i mean it's almost like a double record but there's so much material on that and um you know i would have liked to hear some more of it probably in the live context uh, yeah for whatever, for, every, for every reason uh danny more has been played off of shake the gate than off of broad dog yeah shake the gate um we've been doing longer but we actually did just about as many songs from Medicaid Fraud Dog, um, albeit for just not as long, for not as consistent of a time period. So we did um, Backwoods, Psychotropic, uh, Type 2, and I'm Gonna Make You Sick. We did all four of those. And I want to say another one, but it just isn't coming to me right now. Oh, oh, and uh, Mama told me. Um, so those five we did um, on a semi-regular basis. We did it fairly regularly from from right before when the record came out, right right after I started, right after the interview we we last did, um, up until about well, up until COVID, really. And then with the with the advent of COVID. We took not a full on break, but in 2020, we probably played nine shows. And in 2021, we probably played 10 shows. And it wasn't until the summer of 2022, I think, that we started. Oh, no, it wasn't until the summer of 2021 that we started playing sort of semi-regularly again. And I think with that, we were still doing a couple of the things from Fraud Dog. But I think it was also that kind of uh, comfort zone, whereas like we had been doing the the um, shake the gate medley for a longer period of time. It had already been kind of ingrained, whereas the Medicaid fraud dog songs were were still new by the time we had to take the covid break. So they kind of some of them got sort of lost in the shuffle the one we still do the most is mama told me we still do that which is a uh, peso paid bouvier's um kind of debut song we still do that one and very occasionally we'll do i'm gonna make you sick those are the two that had music accompanying music videos so those were like the two singles if you will from the album um but there were some other really great songs that i would have loved to have gotten into and I did a couple of them before. I did uh, this one called 69. I did that one before Maggot Brain one night. And probably one or two. Oh, oh, and Dada. Dada is another one that I did before Maggot Brain a couple times. Um, 
And yeah, those those are kind of the, the key ones that we did. But yeah, I would have loved to have done more of them because I, I really enjoyed that album. Yeah, for sure. And um, then, of course, shortly after that, kind of started the uh, the retirement tour, uh, One Nation, and uh, caught you guys in uh, Greensboro on that tour with uh, Fishbone and Galactic and what a fun time that was. Yeah. And uh, we were still, you know, not yet to the pandemic yet, still loving life and everything. Um, and then, uh, of course, that derailed things. But, um, you know, I got to give you credit, Danny, during the pandemic, how you really, you know, reached out and kept in touch with, you know, the audience and uh, took those requests and did some of those piano performances and all that. That was very cool. Thank you. I, I felt it was a unique opportunity for us as human beings to um, experiment with new ways of staying in touch in a time that was just so harrowing for so many of us. I, myself, at the beginning of that period, was just reeling from recent um, health issues that I had had that had caused me to start kind of getting in shape and running and caring about my body more. And then, boom, COVID hit. and had I not done that right before, I would have died from COVID because I got a really bad bout of alpha when it when it hit. And it was so bad that there were just night after night that I was like, I think this is the last night I'm going to be on this planet. You know, not to sound too macabre, but that was that was how I was feeling every night. And that was what motivated me to do the Secret Army Exaltation album. Um, that's... Uh, that was our, yep, right there, boom, our 2020 release. And then the album with the Brothers Nalbandian, the Garmia Caramel. I basically was recording both of those albums uh, with COVID. So in quarantine, sick as a dog, trying to uh, knock out as many vocal sessions as I could with my lungs just on fire. And uh, at first it was kind of like, I need to do the records that I felt like I needed to do before I died. That was like how I felt. And uh, also did at that time, started at that time, the Dr. Musick album that only my patrons on Patreon have gotten, but it's a, it's an album of all P-Funk covers from throughout the history. It's kind of a good companion to the book in a way, because it's stuff really kind of rare stuff from, from, the very, very earliest period up through the heyday period and right after. And uh, all of that was happening when I had COVID. Um, I got over it after several months of quarantine and a couple of hospitalizations. And I decided to move out into the country where I am now, uh, right down the street from George, still in the same city, but just out off the beaten path. Um, and just in, in a nice rural surroundings, got 3.6 acres, just open. The kids can run around and play. And it was a great place for me to, I, I told myself once I was cured, so to speak, but I had the long COVID, long haulers disease. So I was still suffering. I said, I'm going to do all the things that the road and my other residencies and jobs kind of prevented me from doing because I had a really regular classical residency in Georgia as well as my P-Funk gig. And as much as I loved those gigs, especially appreciating them after they were gone, they prevented me from doing some things that I was allowed to do during, during the, the pandemic. So two major things that I did in that time 
uh, was I decided, you know, because I'm, as you mentioned, a classical musician first, uh, I decided I was going to learn all the pieces that I, I spent my life uh, baffled by, the, the pieces that that didn't really work for the residency, because at the residency, they want classical music, but they don't want crazy virtuosic concert pieces. They want stuff like Claire de Lune and things that people can eat to. And, you know, it's, it's a, a more calm kind of vibe. So I wanted to focus on those pieces that I considered like the 10 or 20 hardest pieces to learn and just put hour after hour after hour of practice and, and doubled or tripled my practice regiment at that period. I was, I was practicing six, seven hours standard every day. And, um, that was one thing. And then the other thing was sitting down and writing this crazy book <laughs> that, uh, somewhere along the line, I decided to, to take up, um, and if it weren't for the pandemic, uh, I wouldn't have had the the time, the wherewithal, or even the sort of creative spark or that that spark in me, that regimented feeling of saying, "Okay, I'm going to run two miles, come back, practice for six hours, sit, uh, do my exercises, then go to the computer and type this book up for five or six or seven hours, make a small dinner, watch TV for watch Truth and Rhythm for a couple hours and some other podcasts, and go to bed." And that was like my every single day during the pandemic um it was all about process for me and regimen and uh yeah if if it weren't for that that crazy time i wouldn't have had the chance to do any of that stuff so it was really i don't want to call it a blessing because it was also a kind of horrible time but it in disguise some kind of blessing i think yeah i mean it could go either way with people right either the idle time was destructive or it was very productive and like um regenerative you know yeah yeah um i kind of approached it like you too although i didn't get sick then you know i said man i gotta get in the best shape i can because this thing's out there and i want to make sure that you know if i do get hit i'll get through as best i can so i dropped weight i worked out and you know i made use of that time too um but i didn't get COVID until about three weeks three four weeks ago i got it for the first oh. time um, and, uh, but, you know, fortunately I was, you know, uh, vaxxed and, uh, um, in better shape, you know, and so, That's but great. it still was nasty. I'll tell you. Yeah, no, we, uh, I got it my second time when we were on the UK, the last UK tour that we did and about half the band got it. And about a third of the band was forced to stay in the UK for extra time after the tour was well over because they had positive results at the airport and i was sick but luckily i had a negative result by the time it was time to leave um but my body didn't know that i was sick as a dog all the way home and after i got home and all of that but uh a good third of us were stuck there but that was omicron which is like the later the later version the not not as heady sequel uh yeah tertiary version of covid that uh, granted it was nasty it was a, like a very nasty flu yeah. very nasty but compared to what that first thing and was especially scary about it not to dwell too much on it, but was especially scary about it there was no vaccine when we got it at first and there was no talk of even a vaccine it was just we have it people are dying and in the south there were huge numbers of people dying i knew a bunch of musicians djs vocalists 
that had passed, especially folks from New Orleans and Alabama, places just just west of here. Um, so yeah, it was crazy, but I'm glad to hear that you're that you're well as a result. And and again, it probably had a lot to do with with getting better. Like I dropped 75 pounds at the end of 2019 by sort of happenstance, had nothing to do with COVID. And had I been heavier and still drinking and still, you know, not taking care of myself, I don't think I would have made it. Well, that's another interesting thing. If people go back and look at that 2017 show of both you and I, they'll see yeah. us a lot, <laughs> lot heavier and not yeah. healthy. So, yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, hey, man, so glad you pulled through it like you did. And congratulations on, you know, making uh, lemonade out of very sour lemons. Thank you. Um, uh, but you also had some other life changes too, right? Didn't you get married and did you have a kid during that time? And I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, now I have three kids uh, uh, married to uh, Patavian Lewis, who, as as some people know, is uh, a member of the band, a member of Parliament Funkadelic as well. Uh, one of George's granddaughters also, and uh, also had her own group with Tanisha Nelson, Candy Apple Red, and uh, was a member of 3GP. And we worked together for years. And um, at least from my take, it was not planned. <laughs> she might have some other take. For my take, it wasn't planned. But we were best friends for a really long time first. A really long time. And so that was kind of cool, organic thing about it. Because I think probably all of my prior relationships were defined as fool's rush in kind of vibe. And this was like a, a very well-tended-to garden that was you know, nourished and taken care of and a, a deep, deep friendship was developed first. And, um, and that's, and so it was a really beautiful thing. Um, you know, like the Brides of Funkenstein say, it's a beautiful thing when it happens naturally. It was a beautiful thing when it happened, you know? So it was, uh, it's one of those type of things. Um, and yeah, yeah, three three daughters, three wonderful, beautiful, healthy, talented daughters, um, and uh, they all play and sing. The youngest, who's still a toddler, is the best singer of the three of them. So I think she's going to be the serious vocalist, like Batavian. Uh, but the two oldest are serious, serious pianists. So it's a really cool. It's a really cool family structure. There's a lot of music going on in this house at all times. Wow. Well, I look forward to seeing that family act at some point. Yes. Yes. <laughs> It'd be that's, very cool. That's awesome, Danny. Um, Thank you. Yeah. So what was it like, uh, you know, when you finally got back out there for real after the pandemic, you know, uh, with George and, and the band? Uh, it was absolutely uh, therapeutic is the best way to put it. I, I'll never forget where the show, I remember exactly where the show was, was in Connecticut. And then we had two shows in, uh, in Manhattan and New York right after that. And all I could think was, it was like, oh, my life is back. You know, it's like everything that I, you know, I feel like so many of us, despite making the best use of our time and finding new avenues, I feel like so many of us felt like we had lost a piece of ourselves um, in that time. And certainly the touring members of the band are no exception. 
And uh, because for so many of us, this is cathartic. There's a catharsis involved in this. And I think we talked about a little bit of the process of the live playing live with George and how it's that sort of maintaining that, that balance between order and chaos between like extreme concentration and extreme letting go. There's something extremely cathartic about that too, especially when that balance is natural and it's, it's instinctual when it's, when it's become like a part of your, of your life and your rhythm and your routine. Losing that was unexplainable. I just looked at a post that I made that was like in one of my old posts and it said something like, this is the longest I've gone without playing a concert since 1997, <laughs> something like that. And it had been, you know, three months into the pandemic. And now I think about it, it's like, like nothing. But at that point, it was like I had lost a limb or an organ, you know? And, um, and yeah, getting back was just the most exhilarating release and um, the most cathartic experience I could even imagine. Really hard to explain, but, but absolutely wonderful and glad that, that we were able to slowly build back up. But even still, you know, somebody was just saying to me, yeah, some things will never be the same. I think there's probably some some truth to that. The the um the way that the world was organized still isn't put back together to me. Because now maybe not with live music. With live music, a great show is a great show that'll always be the same, I think. But just the day-to-day -day sort of tedious things that we deal with both before and after, I feel like there was an organizational entity that hasn't come back all the way since. I think it comes from the retirement of large amounts of skilled, skilled folks who were just like, I'm out after a certain point. And uh, I don't want to say they were replaced, just replaced with incompetence, but just little things I've noticed, getting the car fixed, getting something fixed around the house, somebody, a handyman or, uh, finding the right amount of diapers or little things that's, you know, it's, it's still kind of frayed. It's, it's, it's not put all the way back together. Yeah, we kind still, of got this still some disarray out there. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a loose version of what we were at before. So I think some things will never be the same. And, and we're not, we're still not playing at our full, uh, you know, we were on the road, some crazy amount of days a year right before COVID and we're not doing those numbers, but we're doing maybe a little less than half of those numbers, which is still better than nine shows a year or whatever it was during COVID. And again, that time allowed most of us with enterprising spirit to find other things, Patreon, a podcast, uh, uh, new, new avenues, so that you wouldn't be completely out in the in the cold in the dark, um, because uh, if if ever you know the, I used to have this adage that you can't do any one thing and be successful in music, you have to do a multitude of things or at least know how to do a multitude of things. That adage is more true now than it's ever been before because not because as before you had to just know it all. Now it's because no one thing will give you enough time or income to be that thing. Now you have to.
balance them all out to give it that, you know, to give it that uh, quantity of work or whatever it is. You got to be, uh, a, you be a, di- a diversified entrepreneur. That's right. To be a musician now. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And so, yeah, no time is more true than than in the present. How, how would you say, if you can, that the uh, band is is different now from you know uh, right before the pandemic? I know there's been some personnel changes from that group. You know, we got uh, you know Mike instead of Blackbird, and yeah, uh, different lead singer and. Um, so there's been some personnel changes. Um, uh, the other new guitar player too. Um, yeah, Kevin Oliver. Kevin Oliver. Yeah. Um, I, he he had he was cool. I liked him at the show. Um, yeah. He lays down his tone. It's got that sort of you know sear through your brain kind of funkadelic tone, which I love. Yeah. Um, A lot so, of people don't know that Kevin. You know, Kevin was in the band during the heyday of Parliament Funkadelic. He was. He was one of the guitar players, and you can watch the old videos. He was in the group from like 79 to like 81, 82. So he was in the group at that time. Um, There was a a lot of, they used to do a famous version of Red Hot Mama where Kevin Blackbird and Eddie, or Kevin Blackbird and Mike, I think, would like share the solos. They'd all kind of trade off solos on Red Hot Mama with Gary kind of emceeing it. but yeah, Kevin was there during that heyday, during the anti tour, the Glory Halla Stupid tour, the uh, greatest funk on earth. That period, uh, Kevin Oliver was in the band, and then of course Greg Boyer has returned on trombone since the pandemic, since since we came back uh, a little bit, a little bit after we came back actually, so more recently. Um, and yeah, Uche, uh, one of the new lead singers, and. Uh, and who else? There's, I feel like there's somebody else too. Um, oh, fewer... oh Rod- Rodney Skeet Curtis, of course, came back as well, um, playing bass along with Lige Curry, who's been there for a very long time, the longest tenured bass player in the band. Um, so we got both of those guys, blessed to have both of them um, on the bass chair. But yeah, yeah, a, lot, a few a few changes, I guess. Let's go. I didn't really fewer fewer girls. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, fewer girls. Yeah, well, Patavian uh, got pregnant, so she had to stay home with the baby. <laughs> that was one thing. She's been home since um, she's been off the road since twenty twenty two, and uh, and then another female singer we had named Ma- Mahogany. She was on the Medicaid fraud dog album as well, and she was here for a brief period, but then she left right before COVID. Um, so yeah, fewer girls. That's very true. And yeah, those are the major changes that I can think of. And then, of course, you know, we have our crew personnel can come and go even more interchangeably than within the band. And and that can make differences that maybe the fans don't see, but they may hear or feel. So that can make a big difference, too. Yeah. And then a couple of changes in the set list, I guess, you know. Oh, yeah. We dug out. And um, when I went, uh, it was a fuller version of uh, up for the downstroke than maybe I've heard yeah. in a while. Yeah. Yeah. Nappy yeah. dugout was, um, I think that was my call. I think, uh, we were in Japan and we started practicing it at the sound checks and George is the kind of band leader where he will rely on his confidence in his band and their ability to, 
know what they're doing with regards to particulars in terms of some of the rarer stuff. So he'll be willing to do it um, when I come to him and say, or one of us comes to him and says, but for me personally, I'll be like, hey, we sound checked today. We did Nappy Dugout, Dr. Funkenstein, whatever. That's another one we brought back uh, quite a few shows recently, Dr. Funkenstein. Um, what else have we done really rare stuff? Well, at the we just did a special show at the Met recently for Miss Lauren Halsey, who's this incredible artist um, from, from Compton, from the West Coast, who did this amazing um, sort of uh, Afrofuturist Egyptology piece that's on the roof of the Met. Uh, you, people can go see it now, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And we did quite a few kind of rare things at that. I, we did Sendagram, which I don't know if many people know that one, but that's a Jessica Cleves classic in the P-Funk canon and among the P-Funk diehards. That's like for me personally, just as a fan, that's probably in my top five favorite P-Funk songs of all time. So the chance to do that um, and to do sort of the full version of it was really cool. How much but, did you get to rehearse or prepare for that track? Uh, that day, maybe the day before, you know. Uh, but that's how it goes. If if he hears it at soundcheck, or if he hears myself and maybe one or two other people say, "Yeah, we did it. It sounded great." He'll have the confidence to have us count it off and do it, and that allows us to do a much larger uh, uh, breadth of 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 discographical songs. Um, than normally so he'll he'll be willing to go for those things he just has to have the confidence in us uh some other things we've been trying to push lately is uh trash at gogo we've been practicing that a lot lately to try to get that into the set um and i feel i feel like you and maybe clip or like the real historians you know the real crate diggers if you will through the p-funk canon with those yeah lige lige is another one lige will pick out some some really obscure stuff and uh and mike hampton too mike hampton will will mention here and he'll be like oh yeah what about this what about this and i'll be like oh yeah that'd be amazing you know um so there's there's stuff that that makes its way in from the from the canon that that people are always excited to see and hear like with nappy dugout uh when we did it the first day in japan i remember riding back up the elevator with George, Greg Boyer, Lige, and Mike, and all of them, because they're all kind of, I mean, Boyer and Lige come from an era, Mike comes from a different era, George comes from a different era, as far as like when they joined the band. And they all agreed, now this is the first time we've ever played this. We've never done this before. So that's such a great feeling to know that we got to do something we've never done. You know, it speaks both to the size of the catalog um, the largesse of the catalog and also just the willingness to try new things for a 68 year old band. That's, that's quite a Marvel. Yeah. And especially for George to roll with it like that at 82 or whatever he is now. Yeah. Um, unbelievable. Yep. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask you, Danny, when you're on stage doing these songs, uh, I'm not sure if I asked you this the previous time, but I was thinking about it when I saw you this last time, especially, um, to what extent, when you're playing uh, parts that say, let's say Bernie, you know, did originally or got famous for, you know, how do you, um, 
decide how much to do that's sort of a tribute to him or copying him versus your own spin? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, a lot of times that stuff has been canonized within the framework of how it's been performed live by my predecessors, Bernie included, because even Bernie would sometimes play his own parts differently live than how he did them in the studio uh, in order to, and I've mentioned this before, you know, you're a person with two hands copying yourself with multiple hands because you did however many overdubs, especially someone like Bernie. Um, but Amp Fiddler and myself are also good examples of that with the studio because George will have us do multiple, multiple overdubs and has done it like that a lot over the years. So you have to find a way to um, do a maximalist version with the two hands, the two, the, the, you know, the 10 fingers that you have, knowing that it could be a hundred fingers worth <laughs> of notes going on due to overdubs. Uh, so you do have to sort of self-canonize a certain amount of stuff, but then there's stuff that's been canonized over the years. So I was actually just thinking about this the other day. Um, a live arrangement will become prominent uh, in in the band's uh, lexicon, and then it will almost supersede the original sometimes, where if you're trying to do something from the original, something classic, it might butt heads against those who are in a position to defend this live arrangement. Maybe they came up with the live arrangement. Maybe there was a reason that live arrangement had to be like that because of a medley or something, but now it's not like that anymore. So then you ask yourself, well, why are we still doing it? Well, A, the fans might like it. They might prefer it. The band might like it or prefer it, or it's what people are used to. Some people came in at different times where it's all they know. Maybe they think that's how the song actually goes. You know, the longer you're in a band, probably the less you're going to go back and listen to the originals. I mean, I don't know. Those of us who practice our stuff a lot, we're trying to do it. But I can imagine being, I don't want to say jaded, but you, you get sick of things or whatever, and maybe you don't go back. I know whenever I go back and listen, I always hear something new. It's like a Dolly painting. I'll be like, oh, wow, that's right, that thing. Now, why don't we do that? We need to do that. Um, and sometimes it fits and sometimes it doesn't. So you have to find a way to be the guarantor of, of authenticity, but at the same time provide your bandmates and the audience that's used to a certain thing uh, with the... With the um, the, the confidence and the comfort to know that this thing is about to happen in this next measure that they're always waiting for. And it might not be true to Canon. It might not be true to the classic recording and maybe it is, but it's in the wrong place. Like that kind of stuff is so common, uh, especially stuff like say uh, knee deep, which is a 15 minute record and probably a 25 or 30 minute live version. Um, even without all the added stuff at the end and the medley and all that, it's cut up in a way where, like, for instance, Felipe wins scat solo. On the record, it happens in two different places. It's not all in one place. But for the sake of sort of um, compartmentalizing sections, for the live show, the Felipe wins scat solo is all in one place 
because going back to it later doesn't make sense with respect to the guitar solo and then these other medley parts afterwards. So things like that are really common. You know, there was one thing that I was saying the other day, also with respect to Knee Deep, when we come back in um, after the first, I think it's after the, after the second verse. <clears throat> and on the record, it's this great moment of the something about the music, you know, and George does the, she turned me on and out. We don't even do that. Because now we're just going, everybody sing, oh, you know, having everybody in the audience. So it's also this thing with the audience where, like, the band gets caught up in these important connections with the fan base, practical connections, that a part might be missed. It's, it's, sometimes it's sad because sometimes it's some of the slickest parts. And but then you might have somebody who's slick enough to find a way to kind of wedge it in there without disrupting the other thing. But that's a very hard thing to do. And you'll see people turn their heads, even cats who have been there for decades, when they also know that that is actually, <laughs> the, I've had arguments with my bandmates, you know, over the years. they will be like, well, that's how the record is. Done. I know, but we need to do da 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 da. It's like, okay. So you have to have that sort of happy medium, find a way to balance. And we talked a little bit about that in our last interview, balance between the way Bernie played it, the way it is on the record, the way the subsequent players on any instrument played it, and then what you bring to the table. But again, that last part, what you bring to the table, you've got to have at least a decade or more before you can even find something suitable that fits that you're doing stylistically that makes sense within the framework otherwise you'll get the hand from george or you'll just feel it yourself and be like oh why did i do that so stupid that doesn't fit <laughs> so there's a lot there's a lot but, to but, think but about. there can be like discovery too you know yes like all yes. of a sudden let's say maybe somewhere in atomic dog or something you like throw in like a little electric piano noodling or something and maybe it like is something that's really cool yes and, and a lot of times in those extended vamps, that's where you have the room to do those things. So like there's a vamp at the end of Atomic Dog where I've kind of come up with a synthesizer solo that I do. And then it's, it's made way to allow a drum solo that Benzel does. None of that was there before Benzel and I started doing that. That was just a way of hyping up that end of the show thing and making it big, trying to make it bigger and bigger every time. Uh, up for the downstroke, which you mentioned, the extended version of that where we're re really able to kind of vamp on the vamp can open up to more and more things. And uh, downstroke itself was the result of Cosmic Slot vamp going too long back in the day. And it became, up for the downstroke came out of that as as a jam from the vamp that a lot of people don't know that you know like around 70 seven, late 73 early 74 when they were touring on cosmic slot downstroke came up out of that in the live and so did the b section of mothership connection but that just kind of got tacked on to star child at the end later that little dun, 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 that little thing so yeah it can it can build and grow into 
into moments and more, it can become morph. new songs. Yeah. Morph. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, and you mentioned uh, Benzel and, um, and, and Lige and all that. And I just wanted to also, this is another thing that kind of, since the last time we connected uh really yeah. cool, really cool project that I enjoyed a lot. And um, thank you. I think there's other stuff you guys did. That's still probably not released in this yeah we did a ton of stuff for that in fact uh lige benzel and myself we recorded all our parts together and we were just concluding or maybe in the middle of a secret army tour and so we were really tight and really having fun and then mr david schwartz who put the project together the executive producer of that project he had us go in the studio with the grand piano and the moog and the drums and the bass and all that stuff and got to really let loose and i remember listening to it and being like oh this is great but half the stuff i remember isn't even on it so there's even like any project though i can say that about medicaid fraud dog as well because medicaid fraud not to go back too deeply but medicaid fraud dog about two-thirds of the songs that i sort of associate with that project aren't even on the album so uh there's so much of that always you know not necessarily cutting room floor, more like room for the next release, essentially. But yeah, that was a fun one. And uh, got to have uh, also my fellow bandmates, uh, Tanisha Nelson, on that, on that Detroit Rising as well. I, I worked with her pretty closely on a couple of the tunes that I wrote for that album. And then, of course, Blackbird and Greg and Steve Boyd got on their parts out on the West Coast. And Gabe Gonzalez got on his parts in Detroit. And a few of the other guys as well, Kern Brantley, for the people who know who he is, amazing band director who's worked for Lady Gaga and a whole bunch of incredible bands, um, and a bunch of really great musicians on that. So that was a that was a fun project. Yeah, and you mentioned Gabe. I had this here too. So I know yeah. been doing a lot of stuff with him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Gabe uh, Gabe has been my my friend and brother for for the longest time. You know, I played with him in 420 when I was still in my 20s and uh and he's just such a great guy and he's another one of those historians he's a historian's historian and um he's one of the other shows that i enjoy along with yours and and uh i got the chance to i think i cut my parts on that album at at here at home right here in this home studio um but uh myself and skeet curtis garrett few guys are on that record that's a diarona deluxe yeah that's a great that's a great album yeah i liked it a lot um really cool well um let's move on to the book man yeah uh, yeah so um congratulations on just bringing it to fruition because i gotta tell you you know <clears throat> i mean i did a book myself and i know yep how hard it is to actually bring it to reality and uh, it took me a long time to do it and i have so many people on the show i'm sure you've noticed who said, oh, I'm doing a book. I got a book coming out. And, you know, like 1% ever materialized <laughs> because it's such an undertaking, you know? Yeah. So uh, just congratulations and thank you from all of us who've been dying for this kind of a book, you know, for so long that makes sense of this crazy uh, discography over thank all you. these decades. So um, what can you say in a nutshell about the experience of taking that on Danny. Yeah. My, my uh, history with this book 
is as long and storied pretty much as my history enjoying this music. And I have to say, you know, 30 years I've been writing this book. And that really is true. I mean, I sat down and typed things out in 2020, 2021, 2022. But since I was 11 years old, I've been writing down in notebooks when I should have been studying in middle school, high school, and college, when I should have been taking notes in class, I was writing down, these are all the songs Ray Davis sang lead on for Parliament. These are all the songs that Boogie Marsoon played bass on for Funkadelic, like whatever. And just list after list. And some of them were just, they were crazy. They were like that. Super specific, insane, notice piles of notebooks. And those of us who remember the internet in the early 90s and who are diehard P-Funk fans remember that Duke University had the mother page, which was like this great source in that time, basically during the Lollapalooza era, the PCU era, early sampling era, G-Funk era for P-Funk knowledge. And of course, most of it was erroneous. <laughs> but for those of us who had nothing, or very little to work with, it was a treasure trove. So starting with that stuff and then debunking most of it, demystifying, and then going through second, uh, secondary sources, liner notes, things like that. That was my first 10, 15 years, 10, 11, 12 years of this book, of studying, of, of the research for this book. The next 10, 15 years was my first 10 or 15 years in the band where I spent countless hours asking George, Bernie, Gary, Boogie, Michael, Malia, Belita, Georgie, Greg Thomas, Lige, Blackbird, Clip, and on and on and on. Which one did you, which one of these is, is this you? Was that you on this? Did you do, like every tedious question I could ask as a kid and most of them, 99.9% .9 of them would just be like, oh, yeah, that's Danny, I'll tell you. They'd take me aside and they'd show me, well, actually, it was this, this. You didn't know this, but this is so-and-so on the drums. And this is, and just blowing my mind, my whole world changing. And I'd write a lot of that stuff down or retain it, remember it. Um, and, and then the final process was the, the COVID and post-COVID process where I went and said, okay, well, I have this history degree. I went to school. I have a degree. I am an official degree-holding historian. What did they teach us in history colloquial? Because every every history major that has to that becomes a historian has to take the colloquium, and the colloquium is all about two things: legitimacy, primary sources. Those are the two things. So I already had a bunch of primary sources, and thankfully, lots of primary sources of individuals who we've lost, sadly. So. I'm very thankful for getting those, but I had, I still had 70% of the work to do. So I went out of my way and reached out. And, you know, this band, even though it's like 160, 170 people that have been in it over the years, it is still like a family. There are people we like, there are people that I have no analog with in terms of being in the band where we're separated by 20, 30 years, uh, our tenures. And yet they still be like, oh, hey, Danny, what's going on? Of course, yeah. You know, like, it just that kind of camaraderie. It's such a beautiful thing. It almost feels like a five-piece 
You know, it's like a five-piece band with 160 people where they all, it's that same people who I was never in the band with, people who they know me from my tenure and I know them from their tenure. And they were just as warm and kind as the people I spent on stage with for 20 years. You know, such a beautiful thing. And so got to conduct over the phone or in person, but mostly over the phone because it was COVID, about 120 really impactful primary source interviews with about 70 plus of the, of the most key people in the Parliament Funkadelic puzzle, um, from vocalists to engineers to musicians to writers to managers and on and on, including over 30 hours with George at his house. I remember one day we said, we're just, George, we're going to do the 50s today. Today is going to be the 50s. And I come over the next two or three days is going to be the 1960s, you know. And that man's knowledge and memory blows my mind to this day. He can't make that stuff up. He just knows it. He's like, he remembers who the arranger's name. It could be an arranger who, who did a string arrangement on one song for him. And he remembers the guy's name. It could be a session bassist who played on two sessions for him in a 68-year career. He remembers the guy's name and what songs he played the session on. There was like His recall is unbelievable. It's insane. And even he said, you know, like at a certain point, he's like, cut me off around Funk and Teleki One Nation. He said, cut me off at that point because I can answer a couple things, but you need to get with this person, this person, this person, this person. Because at a certain point, he had to like manage the whole thing and so had to leave certain aspects to other people. So in those cases, that's when I would bring on those people for those moments. Everybody has their moments. But his recall from like 1955 to like 78, ridiculous. He, he, he forgot like a couple first names, like maybe twice. Other than that, and they were people that are like very... People that if I said them to you, you even you as a as a diehard and an expert in this and a musicologist, even you would be like, I, I don't think I know that guy. You know what I mean? So like very kind of incidental people that he only forgot like one or two names and it'd be like a first name or a last name. So, yeah, his recall was insane. But uh, tried to get uh, a nice little uh, round you know, a nice rounded version of, of, of folks from different eras, some guys from the 60s, some people, a bunch of people from different parts of the 70s. And then the really difficult part, like to make one example, um, I have blind spots. There are, there are parts of this discography that I just don't know anything about. Um, a great example is, you know, once I joined Parliament Funkadelic, I, I basically stopped buying new Bootsy records. So I think the last Bootsy album I got before I joined the band was Play With Bootsy. I think that came out in like 02, you know, and I joined the band in 03 and I just spent less time at record stores. So I wasn't able to be sifting through the CD or vinyl racks. Like, oh, Bootsy got a new record. Let me buy it. I didn't have the, the time for that anymore. So what do I do? There's a whole cross section of Bootsy albums that are long and have huge amounts of players and tedious kind of liner notes that are sometimes complete, sometimes incomplete. Well, I found Bootsy's engineer, you know, the guy who handled most of the engineering 
and DJing from that last 20 years. He'd been with Bootsy as long as I'd been with George and was able to ask him the important personnel questions on those albums, at least on the ones where the liners weren't weren't complete. And and that's like a lot about what this book is. Um, if we look back on just just the the most important albums, you know, uh, Clones of Dr. Funkenstein or Maggot Brain or whatever. They might list who played the instruments, but they don't list who played them on each song. And it might be wrong anyway. They might have just listed who's in the band at that time, who was in the live band at that time. They might not even be on the record or it could be listed wrong or it could be um, it could be underrepresented. There could be people that are that aren't on that list of personnel that were on the record or people that are on the record that are, that are on that list of personnel that aren't on the record. So <laughs> every combination you can think of and as deep as things like when P vine, the Japanese label in 93 was putting out a lot of P funk records. Um, the ones I'm thinking of most notably are the, the four disc sample, some of this sample, some of that and the five-disc family series, those liner notes are so erroneous. The liner notes on the family series are almost 100% wrong. And um, I've heard from some people they were wrong on purpose. It was some kind of... There's all kinds of stuff about this. And then with the sample sum of disc, I didn't list who's on every single sample, but I listed the samples correctly so that the people who had always had those liner notes with the wrong list of samples can now go back and say, Oh, that's what this is. Um, and speaking of samples, like there's all kinds of criteria for what I included and did not include in the book. So I don't include songs that sample P funk unless George or somebody in the band has a live practical appearance where they actually came in and did an overdub, you know, did a take or something themselves not the sample because that would be a whole separate book a samples book p-funk samples that's a whole other book <clears throat> um additionally i left out things and i mentioned a lot of this in the introduction the process stuff but uh i left out things like writers because it's so contentious the same amount of people that told you they're writing a book are the same amount of people that told me that they wrote every song that i asked them about yeah i wrote that and as much as they probably did. They probably do have some compositional or authorship um, claim to stake. But I can't be changing the, the historical narrative in that way when there's already a very sort of bureaucratic, diplomatic set of writers on these songs. The other thing, too, is the writer's credits is the easiest thing to find for P-Funk records, no matter who it is. Everything from Parliament to James Wesley Jackson to the Chili Peppers to whatever, you can find who the writers are or whatever, who the writers are considered to be. You can find that. What you can't find is who sang on these records, the backup singers, the musicians, specific musicians, song by song. And that was the key thing I was driving for. So I left out certain things um, to make the book both less contentious and as accurate as possible. Again, it's not without controversy. There will be things that people will argue about still. There will be things. And in some of those cases, that's where I used uh, the addition of the, that sacred word or, 
<laughs> so-and-so or so-and-so. <laughs> there was a couple of times where primary sources disagreed, but I was actually extremely impressed by how few times they actually did. I think I could I could list on one hand the cases where primary sources disagreed. So it wasn't a lot. It wasn't a lot. And it's funny, almost all of the cases where the uh, disagreements were with drummers. So there's going to be a lot of revelation in this book about drummers because a lot of these songs that people thought was one person, it's not. And, and in some cases, I had to use majority rules and also go with the people that were at the sessions, most notably, obviously. Those are the people who I would ask. But um, sometimes it goes against the status quo of what we've been told, either on liner notes or by other fans or musicologists or by other musicians over the years. So, yeah, there's, it's not without controversy. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinslift.net. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.